So I'm speaking in the book of Acts because that's the series that you guys are in. And, and I love the title of the series, uh, Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's traditionally called Acts of the Apostles. Certainly the apostles were involved in this thing that we're going to be reading. But it really is the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit shows up, that's when things happen. You know, it really is when things happen. This book of Acts is actually the second book in the work of Luke. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he also wrote Acts. And at one point, they were actually one continuous story of the movement of the gospel, the movement of the good news. And the way that Luke structures both the gospel and his book of Acts is on geographic lines. Okay, so you, you see that the, the book of Luke begins in Galilee with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then as you're reading the book of Luke, you'll see these statements and on their way to Jerusalem and on his way to Jerusalem. So you see that the, the point of the book of Luke is to show that the gospel moves from this backwoods little dinky town to the center of the religious world at the time, which was Jerusalem. And so that's the movement of the gospel, the trajectory of the gospel, and it's Jesus bringing this good news through his miracles and his teaching, and he's gathering these followers to come along with him. The other thing, that theme that you see in the book of Luke, which is also carried into the book of Acts, is this idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned multiple times in Luke, more than the other Gospels. And then you also have prayer. And remember, this is Jesus. This, the Luke's, Luke's about Jesus. And so here you have the Son of God, the one who's existed from all eternity, who is dependent on prayer and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That theme continues into the book of Acts, this dependence on prayer, this dependence on the Holy Spirit. That trajectory of the gospel is also continuing in the book of Acts, this geographic trajectory. Acts 1.8. It's a passage you guys have already looked at. I'll read it for you. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay? That's basically the thematic framework for the book of Acts. And it's geographical, and it's also all about the Holy Spirit. And what, what Jesus is saying is like, okay, it's going to now start, or continue really, in Jerusalem, but then it's going to go to Judea, which is like the surrounding area, kind of like the state of California, if you will. And, you know, Jerusalem would be like slow. And then Samaria, which is this total like mm, kind of cross-cultural area, sort of Jewish, sort of not. So that'd be like, I don't know, Kentucky, someplace like that. And then, um, and then you get out to the most parts of the earth, right? So you, so you see the trajectory of the gospel going out. Luke structures Acts not based on the lives of Peter and um, Paul. Luke, Luke has the gospel sorry, has the book of Acts ending not at Paul's death, which would make sense if it's about the apostles. He has Acts ending when the gospel gets to Rome, as Brian mentioned, the center of the Gentile or non-Jewish world. So both in Luke and Acts, what you see being played out is what you see being played out all through Scripture. 
And that is, the purpose of God's people is to bring him glory by bringing his word to the nations. In the very beginning, you have Abraham, who is supposed to be a blessing to many nations, right? The Jewish nation under the covenant of Moses was supposed to be a blessing, a light to the nations. It's all through scripture. The Great Commission is not something that Jesus said right before he left, and that was the first time they'd ever heard it. The Great Commission, or the idea of taking the gospel, the good news to all people, that's the Bible. The whole Bible is about that, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It's awesome. And we get to be invited in this trajectory of gospel going to all the nations. Um, So that's why this church exists. Really, and as Brian said, it's not just to hear teaching. It's not just to have Bible studies. It's not just to be in community together. It's to be in community with a purpose, with a cause of bringing this good news of healing and restoration to our little Jerusalem and then beyond. So the book of Acts is a great book for us to, to look at to see you know, how, how that happened. How, what can we learn from it? How did they do it? And it really is for all people, and we'll talk about that. Okay, so there's this, there's this sort of commission that's given in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, right? Go out to all these places. Start in Jerusalem, go out to Judea, Samaria, remotest parts of the earth. But what you'll see here is this huge command to wait. Like, don't do it quite yet. So in verses 4 and 5 of Acts 1, you get this very important but wait. <clears throat> Verse 4, gathering them together. So this is Jesus gathering his followers. Gathering them together, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The same idea is repeated in Luke 24, 29. You don't need to turn there. But Jesus told them before his death and resurrection that they were actually going to have to wait for the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's this big pause that Jesus says, like, hey, before you guys actually go out and carry out your mission, before you do the work of ministry, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit. I think what I find really interesting about this and and super convicting is this, this idea. Think about the disciples. Think about what they have already experienced. Think about the kind of training they've had. Think about what they've been through. They have left everything to follow Jesus. Okay? And for three years, they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They ate all their meals with Jesus. They saw Jesus do ministry. They did ministry on their own. They did ministry with Jesus. They have been discipled by the Son of God, okay? For three years, 24-7, by his side. That's pretty good discipleship, I would say. Like, that's pretty high quality. And yet, even though they've experienced all of this, and they've heard his teaching and done ministry, Jesus has said, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready to do the work of ministry because you lack the power. You lack what... I depended on when I did my ministry. If you read the book of Luke, what you'll see 
is that Jesus was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. When the Lord commissions him as, you know, kind of declaring him as the Son of God, you see the Holy Spirit descending upon him uh, visually through a dove descending upon him. And then when Jesus kind of announces the beginning of his ministry, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And now he says, now I'm going to go heal the brokenhearted and release the captives and all of that. So it's such a great reminder to us that the disciples had to wait, even though they were discipled by Jesus. And the Son of God, who lived eternity past with the Father, when he began his earthly ministry as a human being, he waited and depended on the Holy Spirit. So should we. We shouldn't try to do anything under our own power. Okay? Well, what I want to do is take a look at this waiting period. What did they do while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit? Okay, so we're going to be looking at um, verses 12 and following. So verse 12 in chapter 1 of verse Acts is where we'll pick it up. And I apologize for not having the slides, especially because I'm probably using a translation that nobody has. This is kind of old school, New American Standard. I don't know, is anybody with me, New American Standard people out there? Yes. Yeah, it's the guys with the gray hair and the beards. And, um, I love it. It's just, this is what I got from graduating from Talbot School of Theology. I got this Bible. So this is my $30,000 Bible. And um, so I'm going to keep using it. Okay, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey away. So they were about half mile away. On the Sabbath, you were only allowed to travel a certain distance, and so it's about a half mile. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay. A couple quick observations. Um, One of the observations is that they are in this place called the Upper Room, which, if it was a nice house during that day and age, they would have an upper room, just like it says. Sometimes it could be as janky as an attic, but usually if it was a nice house, it would be a, kind of like a living room, a place to gather um, away from the dirt and the animals and the, and the hustle and bustle of the city. It was kind of a, almost like a retreat, in a sense, a retreat place. And it says that they went up to the upper room, which implies that this is probably a place that they spent some time at before, uh, familiar to them, so maybe one of them had owned it, or at least it had been something they frequented. So this is where they're gathered. And you can see who's gathered there from the list. It's the 12 apostles, well, 11 apostles, without Judas. And then it also mentions that Jesus' brothers were there. And it also mentions the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is a very Lukean thing, thing, thing to do. It's one of his themes. Luke loves to point out that part of the inner circle of Jesus, part of his closest followers were women. He mentions it specifically throughout the book of Luke, chapter 8 specifically. He mentions that he names specifically women being followers of Jesus. 
Now, that's, in that day and age, that's not actually a, a, cre a credential <clears throat> that, you get a, that a lot of people get excited about. They'd be like, well, wait a minute. I thought women and men should be separate religiously and even culturally. There'd be this big divide between <clears throat> men and women. But he makes a point to say the women were part of the inner circle. And then in this section where it's naming the disciples, Luke mentions the presence of women. I would like to argue <clears throat> that these passages show a kind of feminism that was radical in that day. Now, it's not necessarily the sort of feminism that sometimes people think of today. Actually, today's feminism is what's considered third-wave feminism. There's been three different waves of it. First-wave feminism was back in the 1800s. It's when women were um, striving for rights to vote, the right to vote, right? And they also just wanted to be treated equally and to be considered of the same value as men. Well, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus was teaching and preaching, especially when he healed an immoral woman and let her, let her touch him. And so here you have what I would say is a biblical kind of feminism on display unashamedly that affirms the value and place of women in the inner circle of a religious gathering and certainly in the inner circle of Jesus' followers. It's pretty cool. What they did there, right, is it says in verse 14... They continually devoted themselves to prayer. So it seems like what they considered the most important thing to do, besides making a decision that we're going to see next, is prayer. You know, Before they were going to enter into this ministry and follow the command to go to the world, they decided that they needed to pray. <clears throat> I've been trying to figure out why I don't do that. I've been in ministry for 27 years. And I still find it extremely difficult to give the right kind of emphasis and focus to prayer. You know, it says that they continually prayed. I don't think that means they did it nonstop, 24-7. Um, it says that it didn't mention that they were fasting, so I want to believe that they were eating and taking meals and doing other things. We know that they're going to make a, an important decision. It's coming up. But I think what it means is that they were... Prayer was a continual part of what they did. It was, it was one of the emphases, emphases and, and it was what they were focusing their time on. So I've really begun reflecting, not just in preparation for this, but as I began this year, I was like, I want this to be a year of prayer. I really want to really be more on my knees and really asking God to do big things. And I'm not doing it to the degree that I want. And so I started asking myself, like, Pappas, I know I'm in trouble when I refer to myself by my last name. Pappas, what is the deal? You know, like, why are you like this? And, and I think there's a couple reasons for it. One of the things is I've noticed that when I don't pray, things still go okay. You know, like, I'll, I'll realize that I go through a day and I haven't really lifted it up to the Lord in prayer. And yet, great things happen. I'll meet someone, have a great conversation. I'll have a discipleship appointment that goes super well. I'll lead a staff meeting. It's like, oh, that was good, you know. Even sometimes, um, I've stood up in front of people without really taking it to the Lord in prayer and really asking him to lead me and to teach through me. I'll think more about, like, what can I, sound, what can I say that sounds funny? What can I say that sounds really insightful? You know, I'll just totally do it on my own effort. And it still turns out okay. 
So I think because of the Lord's graciousness and his goodness, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with things going pretty good. I have gotten to a place where I settle for status quo. I settle for the ordinary. I settle for the okay. I'd be the guy in the upper room with all those disciples, and we'll find out that there was 120 believers stuffed into this thing. I'd be the guy that's like, this is awesome. Like, this is all we need. Like, what more could we ask for? The room is already filled. How could we possibly want more? I'd be okay with that. And I think what the Lord is showing me is that my life lacks vision. My day sometimes lacks vision, and certainly my ministry lacks vision. Like, I'm at a point where I expect out of the day the things that I can do in my own effort. And I'm not expecting in my day or in my ministry the things that would go beyond me. I'm not expecting the unexpected. I'm not expecting the supernatural. I'm okay with the okay. And I gotta be honest, like the Lord has blessed me with some pretty good okay stuff. Like our ministry is going well. Um, I've been free of like health issues and stuff like that. But the, the point I'm trying to make is the disciples couldn't, they were given this vision for ministry that they knew we are in over our heads. There is no way we can do this on our own. We are supposed to go first reach Jerusalem. Okay, that's not easy. Then Judea, then Samaria, then the remotest parts of the earth. Do you know that we have the very same commission? And yet I'll be satisfied with not talking to my neighbors, just going in and out of my garage, mowing my lawn, just being friendly neighbor guy, and not stepping out in faith and doing something that's scary, that's out of the ordinary. If you want to get on your knees in prayer, start thinking about actually sharing your faith with people. That will bring you to your knees every time. Because now it's not comfortable. It's not the ordinary thing. Here's the thing that I've noticed because of this. Because of this, I have become a person who is arrogant and timid rather than humble and bold. What I mean by arrogant and timid is, is this. I think I've got it figured out. I think I know what I'm doing. I think I've got all the answers for the most part. And so I just kind of go through my day relying on my experience, my know-how, my ability just to kind of do my job because I've done it for so long. And what happens in that is I become really insecure. I become kind of aware that, wait, is that the right thing to say? I'm not sure I can do this. And I end up being really timid, especially when it comes to evangelism. Why? Because I'm relying on my own efforts. And I know that I don't got it. I know ultimately deep down I don't know what to say. Versus what you see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see this posture of humility where they're like, we don't know what we're doing, and they didn't. We have no idea how to do ministry, because they didn't. Like We are so desperate for you, Lord, to lead us and direct us that we have to depend on you. They humbled themselves, saying, we are nothing, we can't do anything. And what happens as a result of that humility was boldness, because they knew that now the Lord was in it, the Lord's going to do the work, the Lord's going to make this thing his thing, and it doesn't depend on what they were doing. And I've been trying to do that, and what's amazing about it is it's freeing. If I can walk into my day or walk into a teaching time or walk into anything knowing that I've actually given it to the Lord and ask him to make it his and ask him to take it over, now I don't have to worry about it. I put all this 
stress and worry and you know, sense of success on his shoulders. It's so freeing to not go through our day on our own effort and just to say, Lord, this is yours. And then when I do something and it didn't feel right or I didn't think I said the right thing, I'm like, well, Lord, I prayed about it, so I did the best I could. You do the rest, you know. It's really freeing to walk through the day humble rather than arrogant and then enabled to be bold because the Lord's got your back. That's what the church did. And that's why they spent time praying because they knew that they needed the Lord. Or sometimes we think, eh, we got it, no problem. And once again, this is what Jesus did, the examples in the book of Luke. Didn't even begin his ministry until he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prayed. Okay, let's, um, let's take a look at the next section of verses, 15 through 22. Okay, so we've seen these guys gather, we've seen them pray. It also talks about them being like-minded, the beauty of prayer Corporate prayer is it often does make us like-minded. I love praying in groups because I get to hear the hearts of people. And I get to hear what they're feeling and thinking about the Lord or about the lost. It's pretty amazing. And I, I, start, I find myself in agreement and, and being taught through prayer and being ministered to by the prayer of others. Um, I love that we gather for corporate prayer because it helps us to be like-minded. Verses 15 through 22, it says, At this time Peter stood up, In the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So most of us are probably aware, but if if you're not, Judas was one of the original uh, 12 apostles or disciples who was a follower of Jesus, but then betrayed Jesus by leading the authorities to him so he could be arrested. And he received um, 30 shekels or coins of silver to do that. Verse 17, For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Um, 18, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was also called, was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Quote, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, the beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what's going on there is Peter saying, look, Judas is no longer with us, and we need to replace him as one of the 12 apostles. Okay, So that's basically what's going on there. Now the question might be asked, well, why do you have to replace Uh, one of the apostles. What's the big deal with that? And what you see in the book of Luke is Jesus telling the apostles, the twelve, that they're actually going to rule in the future kingdom, rule with Jesus and oversee the twelve tribes of Israel. And there you have one of these apostles who betrayed Jesus. Not only did he die, so the dying part's not really that significant. It's the betrayal that made him 
disqualified to be an apostle. And so they're replacing that apostle with these guys that they're going to be talking about soon. Okay? Now, the question then might be asked, well, how come we don't keep doing that? How come we don't keep replacing apostles as they pass away with new ones? Well, first of all, remember the issue wasn't that Judas died. More so the issue was that he betrayed Jesus. Okay? Now, the apostles all ended up dying, and they weren't replaced, because once they died, they'll be in the kingdom of heaven ruling. It's the betrayal that caused the disqualification. The other thing that's worth pointing out is there's an office of apostleship, and then there's also a general kind of apostle. Apostle means sent one or messenger. So there's a broader sense of apostle that you see in the New Testament, those who are sent out to do missions. The office apostleship is what's being referred to here. Verse 20 says that. There's an office that's being fulfilled. The other thing that you notice here are the qualifications for this office, and that's in verses 21 and 22. So the qualifications are so unique that there aren't future people that could actually fulfill this role, certainly not today. Why? Well, here's the qualifications. One, verse 21, men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So the apostles were those who were with Jesus during his ministry. Again, the office of apostleship. And then 22, the end of that verse, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So a witness of the resurrection. Okay. So that's kind of one of the sticky things in this passage. Like, why don't we have apostleship today? Why don't we have those offices? Um, that's a kind of a quick version of, of why that is. Um, because of the qualifications and because of um, replacing Judas more of his betrayal and not just his death. The other sticky thing that comes up in this passage is one of the classic, quote-unquote, contradictions in Scripture. This contradiction in Scripture that sometimes people point out is that in Matthew, um, when they describe Judas's death, they describe him as death by hanging. And then in this passage, it describes Judas as having fell headlong and his guts burst out, Right? And so it seems like, well, these are two different versions of the same event. They can't both be true. Well, the reality is they can both be true. And often what happens in the Gospels is you're getting different perspectives on the same event. That's what I love about the Gospels. So did Judas hang himself? Absolutely. He certainly did. Was, was Judas also seen, you know, having fell headlong and burst out, burst open his guts? Yes, he did. And those events can actually be the same overall event. He hanged himself. Likely what happened is the rope broke under the strain of the weight, and then he fell down from that and burst himself open on the rocks. What was the cause of death? I don't know what exactly the cause of death was. The passage here doesn't say that he died from that. It just says that's what happened. So maybe both things contributed to his death in some ways. But it's two different perspectives on the same event. So I don't think there's a contradiction to be found at all. All right, let's look at the last section of verses, uh, verses 23 through 26, because now we're going to ask the question, okay, so they got to replace this guy. This is a pretty big decision, right? Office of apostleship. There's only 12 guys that can possibly fulfill this. So 
How are we going to decide? How do we make an important decision like this? Well, here's what they did. Verse 23. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show us Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So, how did they choose? Well, apparently, somehow they chose initially, among the 120, two candidates, so there's some kind of selection that happened. We don't know the details of it. But there's two guys that were kind of offered up. They prayed and asked the Lord who knows the hearts of men to give them discernment. And then they basically threw dice to decide who's going to be the guy in charge, right? So I just want you guys to know if you have an important decision to make, this is how you do it. <laughs> this is how you do it. So go out and get a pair of dice if you don't have one and, you know, your kids want to know where they can go to college? Boom. <laughs> you get to pick the two options. That's the beauty of it. And then throw a dice. We're, we're laughing because we don't even know what a lot is. So we really don't operate this way. But I think it's, it's a good time to point out that when you're studying a book like Acts, which is a historical narrative, one of the important interpretive principles is that when you see a passage like this, you want to make sure that you understand it to be descriptive. It's describing what they did and not necessarily prescriptive, prescribing what we ought to do. Okay? Now, a lot of times, especially with the book of Acts, we find people reading the passage, and especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit, saying, well, this is what's supposed to happen. There should be tongues of fire. People should speak in foreign tongues when the Spirit comes upon them. And we assume that because it happened, it's the normative or prescriptive thing that ought to happen. You don't read narratives that way. And we know that intuitively when we read passages like David having intercourse with Bathsheba. We know that that's not a good example to follow. That one's pretty easy. Some of these others, though, we forget that hermeneutical principle and just be like, oh, yeah, that's what we should do. Another reason to not do that, not just from a hermeneutical standpoint or an interpretive standpoint, is because the, the church itself didn't do it that way the next time they made an important decision. In Acts chapter 6, they're trying to select people to take care of these Jewish widows, okay, or Gentile widows, and they had to choose among seven, they had to choose seven guys from among this giant crowd. Did they cast lots? They did not cast lots. What they did is they prayed and depended upon God's guidance and direction, and in this case, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as well. Because in Acts 6, they're actually now the Spirit's present with them. And they have that guidance and direction of the Spirit. They didn't have to fall back onto circumstances like the casting of lots. Well, I don't know about you guys, but um, I find myself having to make important decisions all the time. Um, for me, the most important decisions I've ever made are wife and life. Uh, I had to decide who was I going to marry, 
and then what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Um, the decision about wife, honestly, was a pretty easy one. I would say it was like the next natural stage in my life. It just seemed like the next natural thing to do. And I knew that I'd be an idiot if I didn't marry this woman. I just, who would I be to say no to this person? She was just incredible. Um, she still is. My friends have described my marriage as the waste of a perfectly good wife. Okay? My marriage is the waste of a perfectly good wife, which I sort of agree with in many ways, because she's, I married way out of my league. What he meant by it specifically is the fact that my wife is totally a sports fan. Her idea of an awesome Sunday is like watching football and, and watching her, her Steelers play football or any other team. She has an M MLB, um, I don't even know what it's called, but she can listen to every single baseball game ever. Um, I buy her like baseball tickets for like Mother's Day. Like, honest, honestly, that's what I do. And I could care less about sports. I really don't care at all. So for all you guys out there who would just love to have a wife that you know, is into sports as much as you are, yeah, right, it's the waste of a perfectly good wife. I get it. Um, it was wasted on me who doesn't care. The life decision for me um, wasn't so natural. And this is when I had been on staff for a number of years. And I had to make a decision about staying on staff with crew or going to med school. And I actually sort of cast lots in a way. And by that, I mean I was going to give it up to circumstances, just let circumstances decide, though obviously the hand of the Lord would be in that. And so for me, my casting of lots, if you will, was, OK, I said, all right, Lord, if I get accepted at UCLA Med School, I was on a waiting list at UCLA Med School. If I get accepted there, then clearly that's what you want for my life. I also had applied for Talbot School of Theology to study seminary, to go to seminary. And I also um, applied for a foundational grant. So I said, hey, if you want me to go to seminary, then have me get this grant money so I don't have to pay for it. That'd be awesome. And then the third option was to stay on staff with crew. And we had like 1000 bucks in monthly financial support to raise. And we've been trying to raise it for like a, a year and a half. And we just couldn't seem to see it come in. And so that would seem like a miracle, the hand of God, if that money came in. So I said, there it is, Lord. I'm just putting it out there. You know, whatever circumstance you want to come to fruition, that's what we'll go with. Well, I never got a call from UCLA. Uh, the foundation went bankrupt, and the support never came in. So I was like, that's awesome, God. Thanks <laughs> so much. I'm putting myself out there. USC Med School called and said, we have a place for you in the fall. Um, if you'd like to join us, you need to let us know in 48 hours. OK, now, I was really deciding the rest of my life. You don't just go to med school and go through a residency and then decide, eh, I'm going to do something else. Like, this was it. I was 30 years old at the time, so I knew that this was my future. And I had done, like, the things you're supposed to do. I sought wise counsel. And I read all these books about trying to figure out your life or your niche or whatever. But I knew at that point what I needed to hear more than the voices of counselors, more than the voice of um, an author of a book, was I just needed to get with the Holy Spirit, get with Jesus, and be like, what?
do you want for my life? And so I decided I was going to fast and pray during those 48 hours. Um, and it was about three hours into it where um, I just heard clearly from the Lord. And, and it wasn't this like audible voice that said, stay on staff. But it was the Lord showing me, opening up my heart and showing me that my real motivations for med school were financial security and the status that it brings in our culture. That it really wasn't because I felt that I was called to it or felt passionate about it like I did about ministry. And so the Lord just showed me my heart through his spirits moving. And I, fortunately, I was wise enough to know that I can't give my life to financial security and status. And so, obviously, I said no to it. Um, really tough decision for my wife. We had just had our first kid. We were literally paying bills with credit cards. Um, we drove a really crappy 77 Camaro, like, Things are not going well. And yet, I just, I just knew that this was what I was supposed to do. And she trusted me in that, even though it was super difficult. And the Lord has blessed that decision like no other decision. My point is this. Like, we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wait. They had to wait, right? They're casting lots because they, they thought, well, that's kind of the way it had been done. But we have the Holy Spirit of the living God living within us. And one of his promises is wisdom. One of his descriptions is a counselor. Like we have what we need to make solid decisions. Now, sometimes, often, the Lord will speak through the scriptures, obviously. He'll also speak through wise counsel. And we certainly need to pray to make sure that we're you know, connected with God and hearing from the Lord. But we have what we need. The guys, that waiting period was 10 days for that early church. Okay? So they prayed for 10 days. right? And the reason they prayed for 10 days is because the Spirit didn't come until 10 days later. We don't have to wait for the Spirit. I also want to emphasize that we don't have to pray for these exorbitant long amounts of time. The point is, the point of the Spirit and the point of prayer is to say, I can't do it. I need your guidance. I need your direction. I don't have what it takes. I don't want to be the arrogant, timid person. I want to be the humble, bold person. And I need you in order to make this decision. I need you in order to go through my day. I need you to take care of my kids. I need you to deal with this lousy boss that I have. I need you to do it. And it doesn't take 10 days of prayer to prepare yourself for that because you have the living God inside of you. Now, because the Spirit is inside of you, it doesn't automatically mean he's going to manifest his power. Okay? The scriptures say that we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That is by faith, by yielding to the Spirit and saying, I need you. I want you to guide my life. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're filled. You are indwelt by the Spirit. That Spirit will never leave you. He's not going anywhere, but you can take over. You can do things in your flesh. You can ignore the Spirit's voice, and you can do it your own way. All you need to do is not wait for a special like experience or anointing. All you need to do is say, here I am, Lord. Speak through me. Teach through me. Work through me. Do whatever you want through me. So my message to you guys is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You have the Holy Spirit. And if you start your day by saying, Lord, use me today, if you pray that, 
If you're prayed up and filled up, now you can act up. Now you can respond to what God brings before your path. It might be a little thing, like your kids is melting down and you just got to be gracious in the moment. You're filled up. You can deal with it. Or it could be an opportunity to share your faith with a coworker or somebody in your neighborhood. You don't need the training experience, okay? The disciples had it. It wasn't enough. You know, does it help? Absolutely, but it's not an excuse. It's not a reason not to act up when we're given opportunities. You have the living God within you if you are a follower of Christ. There's this quote that I can't seem to kind of get out of my head. It's from a book by Andrew Murray on humility. And he says, It is only when we, like the Son, truly know and show that we can do nothing of ourselves, that God will do all. Like the Son, Jesus acknowledged that he could do nothing of himself. Needed the Spirit, needed prayer. If we can know that and acknowledge that, then God's going to do all that he ever planned or hoped for in our lives. So let me just pray that for us. Lord, I imagine that in a a group like this, there are people who are sitting on decisions right now and are wondering what kind of sign or what kind of thing you're going to do to make it clear. Um, I pray that you would. I also pray that they just trust in the fact that you are counselor, that you give wisdom to those who ask. I pray that they would have the faith to listen and then the faith to be obedient and to step into whatever that next thing might be. If it's the next natural step, thank you. If it seems really scary, really big, into the unknown, I thank you that spirit, you go with them into it. Um, Wherever you guide us, you do provide your power and your presence. Um, Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we don't need to wait, that we have you living in us, present with us. It's awesome. Lord, now we turn to worship you, uh, the God of the universe who is willing to indwell us, imperfect beings, um, so we can know you in an intimate way, closer than any other person, because you're in our hearts, you're in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.